Appreciate everyone being here. We're glad for uh, every single person who's here, whether you're a regular member of the church here at Oak Mountain or you're visiting with us. We're glad for your presence today. Appreciate those who have led us in our worship this morning and good way that they've uh, done their task and the good way that uh, those who are sitting in the pew have engaged in worship as well. We say sometimes worship is not meant to be a spectator uh, occasion, but a participation event. And uh, we're glad for each one to, to participate the way you have this morning. I heard some advice given by an older preacher one time. I was a younger preacher at the time. And uh, I thought the advice was, was pretty good. said, just about the first thing you ought to do when you get in the pulpit is read from the text. And I thought that's, a pretty, good, that's pretty good advice. If we're teaching from the Bible, uh, we uh, ought to just get started teaching the Bible. Sometimes we'll introduce the text or we'll have a few comments leading into the passage that we want to read. But for the most part, we want to get in the, in the pulpit and read from the text. So I'll invite you to turn to 1 Peter this morning, the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to read a few verses from chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to put it on the screen so you can follow along if you'd like. This is from the King James Version. Peter says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if we call on the Father, who without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by a tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead, gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. And so we're going to take this passage and kind of draw out some things that I hope will help us in our daily conversation, in our, our daily manner of life. He begins by, with his statement, Gird up the loins of your mind. What in the world is that all about? Gird up the loins of your mind. Gird is not a word that I use very often. I don't usually say, well, before I go out, I'm going to gird myself this, this morning. Well, what does he mean to gird up the loins of your mind? Well, if you remember the way people dressed in the ancient world, they wear pants like we do. They usually wore a long robe or might it be a tunic that that went down below the knees, and that made strenuous activity difficult. And so you've got your, your garment that you're wearing getting down in, around your feet, maybe around your ankles. It just limits you in what you're able to do. And so they developed a, a kind of a, a way of drawing those garments up. And so you'd reach down, take the bottom of the garment, bring it up between your legs, tuck it in, and that gave you more freedom of movement. And so that was called girding the loins. The loins are the midsection of the body. And so you're bringing up that garment, bringing it up, freeing up your legs 
more so that you can move a little bit better. So when you go to work, you want to gird up your loins. Or when you're about to go out into battle, you want to gird up your loins. Or if you're going to run and engage in some kind of uh, act, activity like that, some kind of strenuous labor or activity, you'd want to, to gird, up, gird up your loins. Well, Peter uses that expression here in a figurative way. Gird up the loins of your mind. And so he's not talking about physically girding up your loins, but gird up the loins of your mind. In other, in other words, get your mind, get your thought processes ready for action, ready for work, ready for battle. Prepare your minds for action, which is in fact the way it reads in some versions. New American Standard Bible says, uh, prepare your minds for action, as does the ESV. The, the message, which is uh, quite a loose paraphrase of, of the Bible, uh, when recommended for careful, close, analytical study. But the message says, roll up your sleeves. And that might be a, a kind of a, a, a more uh, a, a common way, a recognizable way of saying the same thing. Gird up your loin. Now roll up your sleeves. It's time to get to work. It's, it's time for action. And so we want to begin there and to talk about three or four ideas that Peter suggests in this passage. Prepare your mind for action, verse 13 says. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we want to prepare our thoughts and get our minds ready for action. Spiritual labor, spiritual work. Get our minds ready by fixing our hope completely on the grace that will be brought to us. And so fix your hope on these things. You can see how fixing your hope is preparing your mind, preparing your thoughts to do your work, to carry out your life as a Christian. Well, go back up earlier in the chapter at this point and do a little background on this particular statement. You can see in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Born again to a living hope. Let's talk a little bit about this hope that uh, we have in, in Christ. What is it that we hope for? We're born again to a living hope. We're to fix our hope completely on the grace that will be brought to us. What exactly is we're hoping for? And what is this grace that's going to be brought to us? Well, grace is simply another word for gift. And we might think of it that way. When God bestows His grace, He bestows His favor. He gives us a gift, something that we don't deserve, something that we don't earn. It's God's gift to us. And so fix your mind completely on the gift that God is going to give to you, is the idea. And when He says, fix your hope completely, we might say something like, totally, or maybe even exclusively might communicate the idea. And so, gird up the loins of your... Get your mind ready for the task that's before you as a Christian. Fix your hope exclusively on the gift that God is going to bring to you. Now, what, what is that gift? As we said in verse 3, what is this, this hope that we've been born again to? 
Well, as you go down through the passage, verse 4 says that we are going to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Four things about this inheritance. It's undefiled, it's imperishable, it will not fade away, and it's reserved for us. It's set aside for us, reserved in heaven for you. Now, many of us whose parents have died, or maybe grandparents have died, have inherited one thing or another. Maybe your parents left you some money, or uh, maybe some jewelry. Maybe you have your mother or your grandmother's wedding ring, or uh, uh, some other object that your parents or grandparents had when they passed away. It came down to you. You inherited it. I've got books. (laughs) Those are some of my prized possessions that I've inherited from my father. I can go back and I can show you some of the books that belong to him, and they're special to me. And so we inherit things that are passed down for us. They're given to us. This is a gift to us that we've inherited. And the idea of God having an inheritance for his children, oh, it goes all the way back, all the way back into the the New Testament. We see it especially, for example, in connection with the land the land of Canaan that God was going to give to Israel. And you go back in the book of Deuteronomy, really all through the book of Deuteronomy, all those passages leading up to their going into the land and conquering it, God talks about them inheriting the land or taking possession of the land. And so God had set aside the land, the land of Canaan, for His people. He had reserved that for Him. That was their inheritance. And eventually, of course, they go into the land and they take possession of it. But we see it in the New Testament as well. Let's look at a couple of passages. Romans chapter 8, for example. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says, well, let's pick up back up to verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ... If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be glorified with Him. And so we are heirs. We are children of God. We are heirs. He has something set aside for us that we're going to inherit uh, in, in the end one day. And so we are heirs. And this passage says we're joint heirs with Christ. Well, what is it that we inherit? This would be a sermon in itself. Well, we inherit the kingdom. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34 We inherit the earth, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. We inherit eternal life, Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. We inherit incorruption, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 12 and 17. We inherit the promises. What has God set aside for us? Eternal life, the kingdom, the promises. All of those things set aside, reserved in heaven for you. You might go to your parents' house or grandparents' house, and, and uh, your, your, grand, your grandmother or grandfather might tell you, now, now my days are coming to an end. I'm not going to be here much longer, but I want to show you this. This is going to be yours. I've got it reserved for you. Well, that's the idea, isn't it? It's reserved, eternal life, this inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. This is is going to be ours. God has set it aside for us. 
Now, a lot of things that we inherit get old and decay and fall into disrepair or maybe even cease to be. You know, your, your parents leave you some money, you spend it, well, it's gone. You know? don't have it anymore. It's faded away, so to speak. But this inheritance will never pass away. It will never perish. It will never be defiled. It is ours, eternal life in heaven. And so what is the gift? What is the grace that's going to be brought to us that we're to fix our hope on eternal life? The kingdom, heaven itself, it's been reserved for us. Also in this particular passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about salvation, verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And so you can see the similarity between the, the language there. This is going to be brought to us when Christ appears, verse 13. But this salvation, it will be revealed to us at the last time. Salvation is a, a synonym for that would be deliverance or to be rescued. And the implication is that we are in danger. Well, what, what are we in danger of? What do we need to be saved from? Well, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, While we were yet sinners, uh, while we were still helpless in the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. And so he talks about the, the salvation that will be ours in the last time. What are we being saved? We're being saved from the wrath of God. The, the, the wrath that really we deserve to have directed toward us because of our sin. You remember Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And so when we commit ungodliness, when we sin, we are deserving of God's wrath. But through Christ, we can be saved from that wrath. And so Peter talks about the salvation that is ours, the salvation that will be revealed in the last time. Fix your hope on the inheritance. Fix your hope on the salvation that will be yours. And then in verse 7 he says that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I think that praise and glory and honor is directed toward us. Now many times in the Bible we read about praise and honor and glory being directed from us to God. But I think it goes the other way in this passage. This praise and glory and honor comes from God to us. When He tells us, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's just another way of saying that God is going to give us His praise and glory and honor because we've passed through this world successfully. What's the hope? What are we hoping for? What's the grace that's going to be brought to us? The inheritance that God has reserved for us in heaven. It's the salvation that's going to be given to us at the last time. It's the praise and the glory and the honor that will be ours from God when we hear Him say, well done. And so Peter says, get your minds ready for work. You set your hope on these things 
And that's going to see you, that's going to see you through. In verse 3, he tells us that this hope is founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been, by His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. It's the resurrection of Christ that gives us hope. If we're looking toward and hoping for something that's beyond this life, something that's beyond death, salvation, the inheritance of eternal life, praise and glory and honor from God, it's going to be ours after this, after this life, after our death. Well, the resurrection of Christ gives us reason to hope in that way, doesn't it? Because Christ has defeated death. Christ has conquered death. He's overcome death. And if He has overcome death, we who are in Him can overcome death as well. So we spend a great deal of time talking about the resurrection of Christ, and rightfully so. The early evangelists talk a great deal about the resurrection of Jesus. We find it in Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5. Over and over again, they're talking about the resurrection. And that's a good message. We need to talk about that because that gives us hope. The resurrection of Christ gives us reason to hope that there is something laid up for us after this life is over. The people that Peter is writing to in this passage are facing very difficult trial. You can see that in verse 6 and elsewhere throughout the book. He says it's necessary that you've been distressed by various trials. talks about the proof of their faith uh, being like gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire. And so they're passing through a very difficult time. They're being persecuted. Their faith is being tried. And so he tells them, get your minds ready. Prepare your minds. You're facing a difficult circumstance, but if you'll set your hope, don't let it waver. Set your hope exclusively on what's going to be yours after this life. Then you can pass through these trials successfully. Well, we need to do the same thing, don't we? See, every one of us will experience hardship in life. Every one of us is going to experience some kind of hardship in life. They face persecution for their faith. That persecution could have uh, influenced them to, to, to lose their faith or their faith to begin to diminish or weaken. Our hardship, our trial might influence us to diminish our faith, to maybe not depend on God, maybe even to reject God altogether. But every one of us will face hardship, whether it's illness or the death of a loved one or injury or financial collapse or any of those kinds of things. Sometimes we might wonder, why, why is this happening to me? <laughs> why is this hardship happening to me? Maybe our question should be, should I be the only one who doesn't have to pass through these kinds of things? <laughs> should I be the only one that doesn't have to face hardship? I mean, everybody else is going to face hardship, but for some reason we think we should not face hardship. And when we do, we begin to ask God, well, why? Am I less deserving of hardship than others? No. Am I more righteous than others? And so, for some reason, I ought to be excused? No, no. Am I more innocent than others? No, no. I'm not, I'm not like everybody else. And if that's just the way things are in this life that we suffer hardship, well then, I, I suffer my share as well. But we can't allow hardship to defeat us, to influence us, to deny our faith, you see. 
We've got to look beyond the hardship to heaven by fixing our hope exclusively on the gift that God is going to give us in the last day. This is discussed often through the Bible. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for example, verse 16. We do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all measure, while we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. The things that are seen are temporal or temporary, and the things that are not seen are eternal. We don't look at the temporary things that are seen, that are before our eyes right now. They're difficult, but they're working for us an eternal weight of glory, and that's what we've got our eyes on. And if we can fix our hope exclusively on the gift, well, then we can persevere. We can make it through successfully. The second thing we'll note from 1 Peter chapter 1 is that as obedient children, we are not to be conformed to the former lusts which are your, yours in ignorance. It's interesting that he addresses, addresses these instructions to us as obedient children. I used to be a child, but I'm not a child anymore. You know, I don't think of myself as a child. And so I kind of think, well, you know, I'm a little bit above those things that are required of children. But, but that's not what Peter says. He says, look, we're, 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 we should be obedient children. And as obedient children, we're not to be conformed to the former lusts which were ours in ignorance. One of the obligations children have is to obey your parents. <laughs> Ephesians 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents. Obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. That's our obligation, a responsibility of children. Now, as children of God, we enjoy a privileged position. We are children of God. We are children of the King. And that brings all kinds of blessings and all kinds of advantages. But as children, we are required to obey. Children are required to obey. Even the very Son of God learned obedience through the things He suffered. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. And so we are called upon to obey. Now, obedience is not an especially popular idea. We kind of have a natural resistance to it, don't we? Well, I'm, I'm not... Look, I'm not going to yield. I'm not going to submit. I'm not going to humble myself. I'm not going to obey. I'm, I'm just going to be my own man. I'm going to do what I want to do. We sort of have a natural resistance to obedience. But it's required by God. It's always been required by God. Going into the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren... Love one another from the heart fervently. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 go on to say that Christ is the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey Him. And so obedience is required of God's children. If I'm a, one of God's children, I, I need to yield and humble myself, deny myself, and obey. In this particular passage, he says, Do not be conformed to the former lusts. Peter describes the lives of these people. They, they came out of the Gentile world. They came out of a world of idolatry and paganism. You can see some of the things that they were involved in over in chapter 4. The time already passed, verse 3 says, It's sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, 
abominable idolatries. And so this is the way they lived, carousing, drunkenness, all the immorality that went along with idolatry. And he says, you know, that, that, that's your former life, and you're not to return to that and be conformed to the former lusts. Now these are the very things that drive our world as well. Pleasure-seeking, excess, self-indulgent, a life without limits or restraints. And we've all indulged to some degree. Now, maybe not to the degree that others have lived a life of excess and self-indulgence, but we have all indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, we've all done the desires of the flesh and of the mind. But when we became Christians, our approach to life changed. Instead of, instead of being driven by lust and pride and anger and malice and all of those things, now we are driven by self-control and sober-mindedness and purity and godliness and righteousness. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, there's a passage very similar to the one that we've just read here in 1 Peter. Paul talks a little bit about the former lives of the Gentiles that he's writing to, how their lives were driven by a sensuality and greediness and impurity. But then in verse 20 he says, now you didn't learn Christ in this way. You see, this is the way you used to live, but now you've learned better and you live a different kind of life. Now you're driven by, now you're motivated by things like righteousness and holiness and truth. As a result, we lay aside falsehood and speak the truth, each one with our neighbor. Uh, we, we don't steal, but we work with our hands so that we can provide not only for ourselves, but to those who have need. We don't let unwholesome things proceed out of our mouth. That, that's the former life. That's the life that we've rejected. And we've learned Christ, and we've learned better, and now we live a new life. And Peter says, as children of obedience, don't be conformed to the former lust, to the former way of life. I remember growing up, I, we would ask my, my dad sometimes, uh, would you ever do this, you know, would you ever do that? Did you ever get involved in this, this or that? And, and he would say, and he would never answer those questions specifically, but, but he would say, you know, I used to do a lot of things, but when I learned better, I did better. And I thought, that's a pretty good answer. <laughs> I used to do a lot of things I shouldn't have done, and when I learned better, I did better. Isn't that what Peter is saying here? Now, you used to live this way. You were, used to be driven and motivated by lust and all those kind of things, but you've learned better, you've learned Christ, and now do better, and don't go back. Remember Jesus says, you know, if you put your hand in the plow and look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. There's no looking back. And so now that you know better, don't go back to the former way of life. Sometimes we might wonder, is living a life of self-control and self-denial and self-sacrifice, is it profitable? Is it really getting me anywhere? I, the world, you know, the world around me seems to be having a great time, and I'm trying to live a life of self-restraint. Is it, is it really getting me anywhere? Well, look, fix your hope exclusively on the inheritance that's coming. Determine, I'm not going back. I'm not going back to the former way of life. I'm going to live for Christ. 
And we can pass through, we can pass through this life and receive the inheritance that's been laid up for us. In this particular section, he says, you know, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust. So we're not to do something, and then we are to do something. Don't do this, rather do that. Like the Holy One who called you, be yourselves holy. Don't be conformed to the former lusts, rather be holy. And in this particular statement, there's a couple of things to take note of. He says that we are to be holy, and we are to engage in behavior that's holy as well. Verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And then he goes on, because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so be a holy person, and as a holy person then, our behavior will be holy as well, won't it? And so we're going to produce fruit with the kind of tree we are. If you're an apple tree, you produce apples. If you're a pear tree, you produce pears. If you're a holy person, you produce holy behavior as well. And so we strive for holiness and purity in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, a good passage that might serve as a little commentary on this idea. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Get rid of everything that would defile us and develop holiness fully, completely, to a state of maturity as well. And so we want to rid ourselves of pride and lust and greed and malice and envy and hatred. And we want to replace that with attitudes like whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, pure, and lovely, whatever is of good reputation, whatever is morally excellent, whatever is worthy of praise. Think on these things. And so we think on that and we rid ourselves of everything that is contrary to that. Colossians 3 suggests compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. Holy hearts will produce holy behavior in word and deed. Don't be conformed to the former lust. Be holy. Cultivate, develop a holy heart. And then your holy behavior will, will be the result. One more point, and then we'll conclude. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth. And so you see that in verse 17. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And then he goes on to say, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, even the blood of Christ. It's interesting to me that you have a reference here to God's judgment and to our redemption. And so, conduct yourselves in fear, because one day you're going to stand before God in judgment. But you also have the knowledge that you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. The latter affects how we think about the former, doesn't it? 
We know that we're going to stand before God in judgment. We're going to give an account of ourselves. And Romans chapter 14 tells us that. We know that if we are not right with Him, this is a terrifying prospect. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you're not prepared for judgment, it's, it's terrifying, isn't it? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Don't fear the one who is able to kill the body, but not able to kill the soul. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. If we are not ready for judgment, well, standing before God in judgment, well, I, I don't know that I can think of a more terrifying experience. But as people who have been purchased by God, by the blood of Christ, we know that we can be prepared for judgment. And so we are not among those who have to be terrified of the prospect of standing before God because, see, we've been redeemed. We've been redeemed, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the blood of Christ Himself. 1 John chapter 4 tells us, uh, beginning in verse 16, that we can have confidence. We can have confidence in the day of judgment. Verse 17, especially by this, love is perfected within us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also we are in this world. How is He? He's holy. How are we? We're to be holy. <laughs> and so you see, when we're prepared, we can be confident in the day of judgment. We prepare by conducting our lives in the fear of the Lord. It occurred to me that the first readers of this might have been living in the fear of their persecutors. Maybe they were afraid of going to prison or afraid of being beaten, or maybe they were afraid of losing their lives. And so Peter says, look, don't fear their, what they might do. Don't fear their intimidation. You live in the fear of the Lord. How do we live in the fear of the Lord? How do we do that? Well, we recognize His authority and dominion over us. We render to Him the submission and obedience that His position demands. Living in the fear of the Lord means we seek to please Him. <laughs> in everything we do, that's living in the fear of the Lord. We understand who He is. He has dominion over me. He has authority over me. I am to be subject to Him. I'm to yield to Him. And I seek to please Him. I seek to please His will, or do His will. Those who do not fear the Lord do not acknowledge His rule and refuse to obey. Again, living in the fear of the Lord simply means that we yield to His will in all things, regardless of what the authorities of this world may ask of us or what we might want ourselves. And so we live in the fear of the Lord in every aspect of life, whether it's our religious life, or our family life, or our work life, or our leisure life, all we do is conducted within the fear of the Lord. Sometimes do we become distracted by the things of the world so that we forget to always live in the fear of the Lord. We, we forget that. We get caught up in our work, or we get caught up in our activities, or we get caught up in our studies, or we get caught up in... And we, we, so all of a sudden we realize, you know, well, I've, I've not been giving much thought to my responsibility to the Lord. And so do we get so caught up in the things of this world, it distracts us from seeking to please Him in all things that we do. Now, if that's our situation, 
We need to make the necessary corrections. And so, what does Peter say in this passage? Well, get your mind ready for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, we're, we're Sunday. This is the first day of this week. This week is going to require some action from us. At some point in this week, it's going to require some action from us. I'm talking about spiritual action, and in all likelihood, every day. <laughs> every day is going to require something from us. We need to get our minds ready to perform the task that's in front of us. Now, we want to fix our hope completely on the gift that God has reserved for us. You, you just keep thinking about that. You just fix your hope on that. And whatever the devil throws at you in this life this week, you, you can manage that. You can, you can deal with it and overcome it. Don't ever go back to the former lusts. Just resolve. Just make up your mind. I'm not going back. Instead, I'm going to continue to pursue holiness. I'm going to continue to develop that holiness until it reaches that state of perfection. And my, my actions, my behavior, my words, my deeds are holy as well. And every day through the day, I'm going to seek to do His will. Because He is the Lord, and I am His subject. And I'm going to live in the fear of Him in all that I do. Get ready for action. We're going to need it through the week. We want to be prepared. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and to worship you today. We pray, Father, that the things that we've done have been acceptable to you, that each of us has, has entered into this worship service in spirit and truth and sincerity, and the things that we've done, again, have been pleasing to you. We know that they've benefited us and that we've been built up by them. Father, we pray that as we live our lives, as each day goes by, as time goes by, that our minds will be more and more prepared for action. Help us, Father, not to be distracted by the things of this world, but to keep our hope fixed on the gift that you have reserved for us. Father, help us to, to refuse going back to the former way of life. Help us to refuse to conform ourselves to the way of thinking and way of acting. And help us, Father, to develop holiness as each day goes by. Help us to become more and more like you in that way. And Father, we pray that we will conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord every day in all that we do, in our family life, our work life, our leisure life, whatever it might be, that we recognize your authority and we seek to please you. Help us in all these things, Father. Help us to be ready as we're challenged this week uh, to uh, live a life that's pleasing to you successfully. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.